1: With Capella University's FlexPath format, you can set your own deadlines, learn at your pace, and access most coursework from anywhere, at any time. Imagine your future differently at capella.edu. Clowns. They're intended to be entertaining tricksters, but oftentimes they create more fear than laughter. There are no two greater examples of this than the subjects featured in today's episode. John Wayne Gacy, who was known as the Killer Clown, murdered at least 33 young men between 1972 and 1978. Pennywise, the terrifying monster from Stephen King's IT, preys upon the children of Derry, Maine every 27 years. One is real, one is fiction. Both are villains. If you enjoy this episode and want to hear more stories about the greatest foils from real life and fiction, subscribe to the Villains Podcast. New episodes premiere every Friday. Welcome back to Villains, where we explore how villainy evolves across fiction and reality. I'm Alastair Murden. Today is the final episode in our season on the villains of Stephen King. Last episode, we explored a more recent addition to the King rogues gallery, The Outsider. Both the book and the show follow an ancient boogeyman that leads us to consider whether evil is real and whether it walks among us. It seems that only by believing in The Outsider, also known as El Cuco, can we muster the strength to defeat it. Give that episode a listen if you haven't already. Today, we're finishing our Stephen King season. Over the course of three episodes, we've come to realize that King often presents evil as something larger than any individual. Yes, humans are flawed, but when we fall hardest, it's because of a larger pull. A pull from something evil. The Overlook Hotel, alcoholism, desire, Today's villain makes all these look like minor evils in comparison. In the shared mythology of the Stephen King universe, this thing is the ultimate big bad. Something so terrible that those who attempt to describe it can only look down in silent horror and spit out one word, it. Okay, so rather than try and pass through the story of this £4 novel while also trying to do analysis, how about we just go ahead and get the story out of the way, shall we? It's a tale as old as time. Alien space creature crash lands in prehistoric New England, eats all the people living there, then sleeps for 27 years. It wakes up for 12 months at a time and repeats the process over the course of centuries. It finds that it enjoys eating children because they get the most scared and thus taste the juiciest. And so it focuses on turning itself into figures from their nightmares. But then, in 1957, 1988 in the movie, it makes a mistake. It kills a six year old boy named Georgie Denbro. It has killed lots of children, but Georgie had an older brother, Bill. And Bill has friends. Six of them. They call themselves the Losers Club. Because this chosen seven have spent their whole lives enduring trauma, racism, abuse, poverty, they are uniquely equipped to stand up to the monster. The story takes a surreal turn as Bill enters the monster's mind and makes it feel small. He makes it clear that the Losers Club isn't afraid of it, The creature shrinks away, and they assume they've defeated it. They return to their lives, finishing school and mostly leaving Derry. 27 years pass, and something strange happens. The Losers Club forgets. They forget about the monster, about their friendship, about whole chunks of their childhoods. But when Mike Hanlon of the Losers Club calls them each in turn, memories start to come back. The monsters awake and kids are dying again. They didn't defeat it the first time. Now they must take the ritual further, with Losers Club members Bill and Richie going not just into the creature's mind, but its body, ripping out its heart. From the moment the novel was released in 1986, it terrorize the dreams of readers everywhere, especially the younger ones. But from our description of the story, you might not understand the special source that makes it so uniquely terrifying. That's because we've yet to mention its primary form, a clown, Pennywise the dancing clown, a man with stark white face paint, impossibly red hair, and sometimes fangs he sinks into children. You might be wondering how a clown manages to be the most upsetting villain in a rogues gallery of King characters stretching back 50 years. And yes, there were scary clowns before it, but Pennywise is the scariest. To understand why this is, we need to first examine why clowns are considered so villainous in the first place. Psychologist Dr. Rami Nader claims that clowns frighten us because we can't read their faces. The social cues and indicators of intent are all hidden beneath a layer of white grease. Nader says there's this inherent mistrust that what they're presenting to you isn't what they're actually feeling. Real-life clown Julie Beguli writes that people perceive a full-face clown as a mythical creature not quite human. These jesters have their roots in medieval times, when they appeared both on the street corner and in royal courts, speaking truth to peasant and king alike. This could be amusing, but also challenging, forcing audience members to examine their preconceived notions about life. After hearing a political joke from a clown, a king might have to stop and consider whether a particular course of action was the right one. A villager might see a clown perform a sad mine routine and become more sympathetic to their poor neighbors. In this sense, clowns were unsettling. They could make you laugh or make you cry. People didn't know what to expect from them. But this effect dimmed somewhat in the early 20th century United States. Clowns often performed with circuses and thus became associated exclusively with fun and entertainment. This is perhaps why we have to question clowns' creepiness in the first place because for a time they were seen as the opposite. But this light-hearted public perception primed clowns for a cultural deconstruction in the 1980s and 1990s, when creators were rebelling against cultural touchstones of the 1950s and 60s. Though Stephen King is often blamed for making clowns creepy, there are other examples of the creepy clown in the late 20th century popular culture. Author Benjamin Radford points to DC Comics' The Joker, Covered on an earlier episode of Villains, as well as The Simpsons' Krusty the Clown, the band Insane Clown Posse, and the doll from the Steven Spielberg-produced film Poltergeist. By the time IT came around, clowns were something to survive, something to overcome. Professor of Psychology Frank T. Andrews writes that there is, therefore, a certain pleasure in watching characters fighting against an evil clown. He writes, we like to learn about dangers in a safe way so that we're prepared in some unknown future time to deal with them if they ever come our way. So by going to see it and watching this evil clown lure children in and kill them, we learn strategies for avoiding that kind of fate ourselves. Watching or reading about Pennywise is thus akin to watching Shark Week on the Discovery Channel. If that sounds far-fetched, When are you ever going to run into a clown in the wild? Consider the story of one of America's most infamous serial killers, John Wayne Gacy. From 1972 to 1978, Gacy assaulted and murdered at least 33 young men ranging from ages 14 to 21. But he was even more chilling because he had an alter ego. Pogo, the clown. It shocked Americans that Gacy, a clown and a family man, could commit such atrocities. Many of his victims were young enough to indicate that Gacy was a pedophile, and many of his tactics became codified in the American consciousness as the go to strategies of that kind of sex criminal. He would lure some of his victims into his vehicle with magic tricks. Or, if they were older, with promises of drugs or a job. Sound familiar? This behavior is channeled in depictions of Pennywise, who draws his young victims in with tricks and then promises the thing they want most in the world. In one of the only good scenes in the IT Chapter 2 film, sorry movie fans, we're book purists when it comes to this villain. Pennywise lures a young girl beneath the bleachers at a sporting event by capturing a firefly in its white-gloved hands. She's intrigued by this display of magic. But then, when she sees his face, the young victim says, You're not my friend. You're scary. His bulbous face is somewhat menacing in the glow of the firefly's light, with its vast forehead and red-striped eyes. But it's also enthralling. Impossible to fully make out, the design leads you to want more, to fully wrap your head around this thing's shape. Pennywise cries, saying in his best sad clown voice, People always make fun because of the way I look. Oh, silly old Pennywise, you'll never have no friends. This resonates with the girl. She says that people make fun of her too, due to a red birthmark on her cheek. Oh, that little thing, he says. I can blow that thing right away. One poof and it'll be gone. (laughs) It's a promise of friendship, a promise of magic, and a promise of the thing she wants most in the world. He beckons her closer and begins to count down to the magic trick. One, two. The girl has her eyes turned, but the audience can see that Pennywise's eye has gone sideways and drool is dripping from his plump lips. It's that uncanny clown face, just a little off, impossible to read. He never gets to three. Instead, his face twists with the massive contorted jaws of a monster and he lunges forward, sinking his teeth into her skull. Coming up, we'll explore how Pennywise played into the 1980s fears of stranger danger.
0: Elevate every morning with Tommy John's Second Skin Underwear. Pennywise the
1: Clown, introduced in the 1980 Stephen King novel It, is the most iconic and frightening villain in the King rogues gallery. Its appeal lies in our collective fear of clowns and real-life predators who hide beneath the guise of the children's entertainer. Film critic Lindsay Ellis has said, that the child murder in IT was especially relevant to the 1980s because there was a national fixation and paranoia at the time with child abduction. And rightly so. As we discussed, John Wayne Gacy had only recently been apprehended after a years-long spree of assaulting and murdering young boys. And Gacy was known to dress as Pogo the Clown. But Gacy was only one part of this wave of fear, there were other high-profile child abductions, such as that of six-year-old Ethan Pates, who disappeared on his way to school in May 1979. Not all of this fear was rational. In some ways, the public was only just now waking up to a problem that had always existed. The fading conservatism of the 1950s meant that people could now openly talk about why kidnappings occur. More often than not, they led to sexual abuse. For some, this had never been clear and the crimes became that much more horrific. There was also an increased visibility around queer culture, leading the panicked masses to incorrectly associate that community with a trend toward American sexual depravity. On top of that, more women in the workplace meant more kids home alone. And so the hysteria continued to spiral Going into the 80s. Imagine being a child in 1980, watching news reports about John Wayne Gacy. You then go to class and are shown a video where McGruff the crime dog tells you that you have to be constantly vigilant for all of the creeps in town. They're just looking to lure you into their cars and do horrible things to you. Then you pick up a copy of Stephen King's It and you discover that these lecherous clowns are not only dangerous, but they can also take the form of any fear, can be anywhere, at any time. Truly, the stuff of nightmares. But even beyond these fears, there is something about John Wayne Gacy that thematically echoes with it. He would spend 14 years on death row During that time, he began to paint and even sold his works for thousands of dollars. Most of the paintings show him as a clown. Some feature the chilling caption, They call him Mr. Gacy. It's as if he was taunting the parents of his victims, saying, They trusted me. I was an authority figure and I took advantage. This reminds us of Pennywise taunting the Losers Club with the dead bodies of children in the sewers, saying, We all float down here. So clearly, clowns can be scary, and sometimes they can even be deadly. But why Pennywise? As in, why is he scarier than all the other evil clowns? If you ask Stephen King, he lays a lot of the credit not on his own door, but with the work of the first actor to play Pennywise, Tim Curry. Curry played the clown in the 1990 ABC miniseries adaptation of the book. It's a fairly dated production with some laughable effects and some fairly awful performances, but Curry stands out. His version of Pennywise leans into the idea of the hobo clown. This was an archetype pioneered by performer Emmett Kelly in the Depression era, it essentially takes the idea of the clown and adds a sad, sensitive side. Think Wiley e. Coyote or the squirrel from Ice Age, never quite able to catch their lunch. But the hobo clown archetype has not aged very well. Audiences today see a man in tattered rags and clown makeup and find the juxtaposition disturbing. To be clear, this is a problematic depiction of homeless people who in reality come from all walks of life and suffer from a wide range of systemic issues. That being said, its use is subtle enough in the 1990 miniseries so as not to be particularly offensive. Curry's performance is more focused on the Depression-era archetype. His voice is old, cranky and uncouth. He says things like, Hiya Georgie! And, Won't do any good to run, girly boy! He also frequently makes allusions to his home in the sewers being a carnival, with rides and cotton candy. His hair and makeup look like a costume, whereas the Pennywise of the more modern films has hair and makeup that look like his actual hair and skin. Which is all to say that Tim Curry's version of the villain feels like a real man like the kind of stranger you might encounter on your walk home from school or under a bridge that you're not supposed to be exploring. He evokes an even more nightmarish image of Gacy badgering kids to get into his van. For our money, the creepiest scene in the miniseries, the moment when this version of Pennywise is sharpest, is when the Losers Club sees him in an old picture album. They're perusing the pages when they catch something. First, they think it's a trick of the light, but then they realize one of the pictures is moving. It shows an old-timey street carnival with cotton candy carts and a man on stilts. At the back of this crowd, easy to miss at first, is a clown doing flips that bring him closer and closer to the front of the frame. Then, he turns Seeing the children in the real world for the first time, he lets out a deep, inhuman growl. Then he rapidly climbs to the front of the picture, ascending a street lamp so that his face is right in the frame. The filmmakers wisely keep the camera in a tight close up on his face so that we feel he is speaking to us. Then, in his cranky old voice, he growls. I'll drive you crazy and I'll kill you all. This all plays right into the hobo clown archetype. The old timey photo gives us that sense of unease at looking into the past, like seeing ghosts. Then, to have Pennywise penetrate that world to appear where he shouldn't be, to reveal that he is one of the ghosts of this old world is especially chilling. It's similar to the final image of Stanley Kubrick's The Shining adaptation, when we see Jack Torrance, a modern man trapped in a picture on the wall, living forever among the hotel guests of decades past. We think he's not supposed to be there. And with Pennywise, we don't want him to come any closer. But then he bursts out of the frame and into our world. And his hobo clown voice, The voice of the angry old man plays on our fears that behind every white clown face is an angry weirdo just ready to kill us. It resonated so strongly with the audience that, despite bad reviews, the miniseries attracted some 30 million viewers. This is incredible. For reference, the finale of HBO's Game of Thrones one of the most popular television shows in recent history, only attracted 20 million viewers. And that was a big budget fantasy epic with modern CGI, bested by a cranky old man in clown makeup. Of the It miniseries, Stephen King says, a whole generation of kids between the ages of eight and 14 were scared shitless by Tim Curry. It was the right movie at the right time. But that was all the way back in 1990. Here we are, 30 years later, and Pennywise the Dancing Clown is just as infamous as ever. King also chalks that up to the modern film adaptations of the novel, the movies It and It Chapter 2. Pennywise is portrayed by a younger actor, Bill Skarsgård. 29 at the time of filming, compared to Tim Curry's 44, meaning that this version of Pennywise has more of an agility to him. He is constantly making strange movements, which take him from his hobo clown roots into truly alien territory. Skarsgård puts the dancing into Dancing Clown, doing a jig wherein he alternates shooting one leg straight out to the side while pumping his arms. While he's in full costume, it's gangly and unsettling. On top of this, he is able to completely control his face like a true clown. He has the ability to stick out his lower lip and curl his upper lip into an intense grin, forming an almost plastic looking mouth shape. Skarsgård once told an interviewer that this was based on the drooling mouth of a grizzly bear. In addition to the strange grin, Skarsgård also employs his ability to move one eye independent of the other. He lets his left lazy eye drift off to the side so that it's no longer looking at whoever he's talking to. This is especially effective because it contrasts sharply with Skarsgård's handsome, mildly sweet face. When the camera is in close-up on Pennywise, he actually looks quite cute. But then his left eye practically rolls out of his head and you realize something is deeply wrong. Again, this plays on our ability to pick up on cues in another person's face to understand their intentions. It's that same feeling you get when speaking with someone who has a certain tick or illness and you realize for the first time, oh, this person's a little different. But in the case of Pennywise, you start to realize, oh, this clown is an alien from another dimension, just holding it together long enough to lure me in and eat me. We've already mentioned one of this Pennywise's best scenes from IT Chapter 2, but we'd be remiss if we didn't mention the very first scene in which we see this version of the character. It was instantly iconic, parodied by the likes of Saturday Night Live and spawning a thousand memes. We start in pouring rain, but it's actually a pleasant scene as little Georgie Dembro splashes through in his yellow rain jacket, chasing his paper boat as it floats along toward the sewers. The music is soaring and positive until Georgie hits his head on a public works barricade, briefly falling down, but not seriously hurting himself. This allows just enough time for his boat to sail down a storm drain. As Georgie approaches the blackness of the sewer grate, the two yellow eyes of Pennywise suddenly appear. Skarsgar delivers the same first line as Tim Curry, but it's squeaked out, almost hard to understand. Like someone who is just learning how to speak. Are you Georgie? He asks Georgie if he wants his boat back, that question coming out with a similarly strange inflection. Pennywise offers Georgie a balloon, and Georgie replies, I'm not supposed to take presents from strangers, invoking the classic stranger danger fears. But Pennywise soon wins him over making the boy laugh with his impression of popcorn popping. They giggle together until Pennywise abruptly stops, his face going blank, his mouth drooling, his breath rattling at the back of his throat. Then, that one blue eye starts to drift away, until suddenly he's back. He reminds Georgie not to forget his boat, holding it out to him. The little boy reaches forward, reaches, reaches, and Pennywise strikes, biting his arm off in one go. Clearly, IT has benefited as a villain from two film adaptations. Each of these harnessed a particular collection of cultural fears and combined them into a truly inspired package. Since IT is a shapeshifter, It can change to represent the fears of any given period and, by extension, the fears that the audience has. In the original novel, King wanted to incorporate every one of the classic movie monsters that he grew up on as a kid in the 50s and 60s. These include The Wolfman, Frankenstein, Dracula and The Mummy. The 1990s miniseries is fairly faithful in this sense, presenting a lot of these characters as written. But in the 2017 and 2019 films, the first part of the story is set in the 1980s rather than the 1950s. The old movie monsters would likely not be super present in the cultural zeitgeist, long relegated to the hokey corners of cinema. So instead, the film has it take the shape of more gruesome modern horrors such as zombies and dismembered children. The very nature of the monster means that it can be updated to remain scary to any audience of any era. Even Pennywise, who is always a clown, can grow and change and become the type of clown that scares each generation. But this speaks to an even more significant aspect of the character. Just as Pennywise gets a facelift every 30 years in the real world, he can come back under a new guise every 30 years in the fictional one. Each reincarnation gives it another chance to wreak havoc on the town of Derry, Maine, and it's a pattern that has lasted for centuries. The problems that affect the town's residents, poverty, racism, homophobia, child abuse, are likewise deep systemic issues passed down from generation to generation. Which begs the question, if it was always there, watching from the sewers, manipulating the minds of the townsfolk. What if it's evil goes beyond just attacking children? What if, even while it's sleeping, its effects still linger? What if the whole town, polluted by its very presence, is evil? Next, we'll learn how IT has been affecting Derry for centuries. Now, back to the story. IT, known primarily by its most common form, Pennywise the Dancing Clown, has endured in pop culture. This is largely due to film adaptations that preyed upon the fears of society in the 1990s and then the 2010s. But for our money, The 1980 novel by Stephen King remains the richest depiction of the character if for one central reason. The novel does the best job of showing how evil is systemic, something that takes root in our culture and is passed down to each generation. It is nearly inescapable, taking truly brave and sometimes lucky individuals to overcome it. In the novel, Mike Hanlon. The only non-white member of the Losers Club is a central character, even narrating certain passages. He learns of two important historical events in Derry that gives us clues as to its larger impact. First, his father tells him the story of the Black Spot Fire of 1930. This was roughly 30 years prior to the events of the first part of the novel, when the Losers Club are still children roughly one it cycle ago. The Black Spot was a popular club in town for the few black residents of Derry. One night, members of the main Legion of White Decency, essentially a stand-in for the KKK, callously burned down the club. Dozens died, though some escaped, including the cook, Dick Halloran, whose sharp-eared listeners will remember was Danny's mentor in The Shining. The racism from the 1930s is still present in the 1950s when Mike deals with verbal taunts and sometimes physical attacks from bullies. This includes Henry Bowers, whose abusive father was always jealous of Mike's father. We see how the issues affecting one generation of Derry are rooted in the previous, and perhaps even before that. Mike also learns of the Kitchener ironworks fire that took place in Derry in 1908. This wasn't another act of racial violence, but rather a different sort of horrific tragedy, in which an Easter egg hunt at the local factory ended in an explosion. It killed nearly a hundred children. One woman found the head of a boy tangled in her backyard tree. There was still chocolate in his teeth. Horrific episodes like this one and the black spot burning always take place roughly 30 years apart, in Derry. In the case of the ironworks, there are mysterious details such as all of the boilers being shut down beforehand. There are often sightings of some sort of weird shape or figure lurking nearby. Mike's father remembers that the night of the black spot fire, he saw a giant black bird presiding over the disaster. A bird that his son will later learn is one of its many forms. This is to suggest that IT is present for all of these events, acting as the impetus for the generational pain in Derry. And if that's true, then IT is not just a clown that lives in the sewers. He's all of the evil in the town. It's an idea that works on two levels. There's the literal story level, where we marvel at the scope of this villain's antics. But there's also the meta, thematic level, which leads us to consider how evils, such as racism and abuse, are not caused by one individual, but by decades of unchecked behavior and the cumulative pain of life's challenges. Of course, this is a Stephen King story. So, in Derry, the evil is supernaturally extreme. Mike discovers that Derry has six times the murder rates of similar towns. 40 to 60 children disappear every year. When his young assistant remarks, people must have wicked short tempers here, Mr. Hanlon. Mike can only reply, something in Derry has a wicked short temper anyway. This alignment between it and Derry's broader ills reflects something we've seen in Stephen King's work before. The idea that evil is larger than us, outside of all of us. It pulls at us and seeps through the cracks of each generation, filling the recesses of our society and rotting us from the inside out. Whether the Overlook and Annie Wilkes and Carrie and whoever else are all either fragments of or victims of that evil, only it actually is the evil. He's all of it. The primordial, unexplainable reality of all that's wrong with the world. It is King's greatest villain for this reason. IT represents the entire thesis of his full body of work. The live-action adaptations of IT tend to lose this aspect of the monster. For example, Beverly Marsh, the only female member of the Losers Club, deals with an abusive father growing up as an adult she marries an abusive husband who in the book follows her back to Derry and is promptly possessed by it the monster thus becomes her abuse both the father who hurt her as a child and the lover who is hurting her now but in recent films this character is almost completely removed mike's role is also reduced none of the backstory with the black spot or the ironworks is kept intact. As writer Katie Reif puts it, the result is the defanging of one of the most interesting elements of King's book, the massive inescapable scope of Pennywise's evil replaced by a more rote internal individualistic struggle. The films do pay some visual service to the idea that it has infiltrated the entire town, At the beginning of 2017's It, a neighbor sees Georgie being attacked and turns away, ignoring the evil. The suggestion is that It has dulled the adults' minds. It has created a world where they just forget about all of their missing children. But the movie stops short of fully exploring these more complex themes. It's a shame because the book version of it provides us with insight into how evil might work in our own lives, how our actions might be motivated by things that took place before we were even born. John Wayne Gacy, before he was an infamous serial killer, was a little boy who was abused by his alcoholic father. Like we said, overcoming these kinds of generational issues takes individuals who are brave and who perhaps have some luck on their side. In the book, after the Losers Club defeats it, they emerge from the sewers to find that though they are victorious, the town is now being destroyed by a storm to mark the death of the ancient, powerful creature. They escape with their lives, but everyone except Bill leaves the town. And once again, they forget about the monster and a lot of their past trauma. King is suggesting that they were the only ones lucky enough to escape their hometown and find a better life. That for most towns like Derry, the hate and violence is so deeply rooted that it can only be ended by a purifying cataclysm. It's surprising then that King has praised some of these recent adaptations considering they ended with the town intact, with the Losers Club simply celebrating their victory. But it might very well be that King has changed his stance on the ancient, unknowable evil. He might prefer these more humanistic interpretations because he now sees evil as something more human, something that comes from within rather than without. In a recent interview, he told Rolling Stone, I have gone back and forth about whether or not there's an outside evil whether or not there's a force in the world that really wants to destroy us from the inside out, individually and collectively, or whether it all comes from inside and then it's all part of genetics and environment. The older I get, the less I think there's some sort of outside devilish influence. It comes from people. And unless we're able to address that issue, sooner or later, we'll kill ourselves. Maybe King doesn't want his human villains to be able to blame it for their misdeeds. The older writer may want to encourage accountability over broader musings on the nature of evil. It's an interesting trajectory from the alcoholic writer who, in 1977, invented a whole demon hotel to explain why his fictional alcoholic writer character might go mad. Or for the Recovering Alcoholic writer who, in 1987, created an evil Midwest superfan as a way of personifying his inner demons as something outside of himself, something attacking him. Or who, as recently as 2018, was writing about an ancient boogeyman who literally did bring out the worst in people by becoming them and committing terrible crimes. King is Human and so we can forgive him for going back and forth on an unknowable cosmic truth. But we can't help but prefer the version of evil that it, the novel, presents us with, something that does corrupt humanity, that pushes it towards its worst instincts. That, ironically, is a more comforting thought than the idea that humans are evil all on their own. But of course, humans are plenty capable of sinister deeds. In 2016, just as the IT film was preparing to hit theatres, a rash of evil clown sightings swept the United States. And though, rationally, we can explain most of those away as simple pranks, the power of Stephen King's signature villain, Pennywise the Dancing Clown, will always leave us wondering. What if the person behind the face paint is evil? Do they mean me harm? What if it's... It. Thanks for listening to Villains. We'll be back next week with a new episode and a new season. If Stephen King has taught us that perhaps evil really does come from within, then it's time to discuss the villains who most embrace this and unleash their inner chaos. Next month we'll be discussing chaos villains, those with no rhyme or reason who just want to watch the world burn. We'll begin with the giant lizard who, with a purposeful grimace and a terrible sound, pulls the spitting high-tension wires down. It's time to go go Godzilla in our next episode. You can find all episodes of villains and all other podcast originals for free on Spotify not only does Spotify already have all of your favorite music, but now Spotify is making it easy for you to enjoy all of your favorite podcast originals like Villains for free from your phone, desktop, or smart speaker. To stream Villains on Spotify, just open the app and type Villains in the search bar. And don't forget to follow us on Facebook and Instagram at ParCast and Twitter at ParCast Network. I'll see you next time. Villains was created by Drew Cole and Max Cutler. Villains is a Parcast Studios original and is executive produced by Max Cutler, sound designed by Michael Langsner, with production assistance by Ron Shapiro, Carly Madden, and Erin Larson. This episode of Villains was written by Greg Castro. I'm Alastair Murden.